Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm anxious we make a, a prompt start, and we do keep to time. Welcome to this meeting. We're here tonight, as you know, to consider and learn more of a much-neglected subject, the subject of common grace. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Before we do that, I'm going to read from God's Word. And if you have your Bibles with you and would like to follow this reading, then please find Psalm 145. 145. And I'm reading from the New International Version. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness. And joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. We are most grateful tonight to Stephen Rees, 
who has come to us to be with us tonight. He's the pastor of the Grace Baptist Church at Salford. We're grateful to him for coming so far north and to be with us this evening. It's a great joy to us to hear from him tonight and to learn from him and from your word more about this subject of common grace, which I suspect few of us know really a great deal about. We've come to learn tonight, and we hope that as we do learn, it will help us to relate better to our many unbelieving friends and neighbors with whom we come into contact day by day. Stephen has said he's going to speak to us for about an hour, and uh, if I judge the sense of the meeting beyond that, there'll be a time for questions as well. So it's a great joy for you to be with us tonight, Stephen. We're grateful to you for coming, and we look forward to what you have to say to us. So welcome, and over to you. Well, thank you very much. I am very glad to be here with you tonight. Um, thank you for inviting me. Thank you to everyone who's turned out for this meeting. As we've said, my subject tonight is common grace. can't quite remember how it came about that I'm speaking on that subject. Um, I know it arose from a conversation with Mr. Hart, um, but I can't quite remember whether it was my suggestion or his suggestion or whether it was the result of that mysterious process where uh, one man suggests option A and uh, the other man suggests option B and then they finish up agreeing option C, though neither of them can actually remember suggesting it. One way or another, that's our subject, and I'm glad to be speaking on it. It's an important subject, it's a difficult subject, and it's one that affects the way that we view lots of other subjects. What is the doctrine of common grace? Well, it's quite simply the doctrine which says that God is gracious, kind, generous to human beings in general. That he has genuine, sincere goodwill towards every human being here in this world. And that he acts accordingly. He actually acts in a kind generous way to every human being here on earth. We use the word common to distinguish this from the special particular grace which God has towards his elect. God shows a special kindness to his elect, a kindness which saves them and guarantees them everlasting happiness. But God also has a common kindness which he shows to all human beings. And we call that common grace. Now, if we want evidence that this doctrine is true, then the evidence is simply the fact that human beings here in this world do not experience immediate, constant, unrelieved misery. Every human being deserves 
to be in total agony now, at this moment. If there were no such thing as common grace, not one human being would enjoy one moment of happiness or contentment or peace. Remember, every single scrap of goodness in the whole universe flows from God himself. He really is the source of everything that's pure, true, wholesome, right, happy. He is life. Apart from God, there is only death, misery, ruin, darkness. All power belongs to God. He's the only one who has power in himself. So to be cut off from God is to be stripped of every strength, every capability. If God were to take away his gift of strength from any man, then that man would be in a moment totally helpless. He'd be threshing round in eternal impotence. He'd be locked in eternal paralysis. God is the only one who has wisdom, understanding, knowledge in himself. If human beings can reason, it's because God communicates to them his own capacity to reason. And if God were to take away that gift of reason, then all that would be left would be a creature locked in a world of insanity, delusion, terror, nightmare. All love comes from God. The only reason we're capable of bonding with one another, loving one another, is because God shares with us his capacity to love. But if God were to take away that gift of love, then what's left is a creature turned in on himself, on itself, forever. Incapable of any tenderness or affection. Trapped forever in a world of isolation and loneliness. God is light. He's the only light there is. All other light derives from his light. And if God takes away his light from any human being, then all that's left is total, unbroken darkness, despair, loneliness, disintegration, ruin. And that is what the Bible means when it talks about death. That is what ultimately death means. To hear God say, depart from me. It means to be cast into the everlasting darkness outside. Into a world without light or hope or sanity or order or joy. A world where there's only weeping and frenzied grinding of teeth. And that is what every human being deserves. That was the warning that God gave to Adam and his descendants. 
On the day you eat thereof, dying you will die. Genesis 3, verse 17. And Paul tells us that from that day, the curse of death has lain over all the descendants of Adam. Death came to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, 12. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Many died through the one man's trespass. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Paul tells us that Adam's sin wasn't just Adam's, that the whole human race sinned in Adam. Yes, it was his individual hand that took the fruit, and it was his individual mouth that bit into it. But every single descendant of Adam by natural generation was involved in that sin, and so death has come upon every human being even apart from any individual sins that a human being may commit, God has already sentenced every human being to death. God has already judged that all the descendants of Adam deserve to die, that their proper place is in the darkness outside. More than that, the sentence is already taking effect. Our bodies are already deteriorating and disintegrating. The illnesses, the disabilities, the muddle-mindedness, the pains, the hurts, the broken relationships, the miseries that human beings experience in this world, they're simply the first signs that death already has its grip upon us all. Paul says, death is already reigning. And yet, this is the point, that process is being held back. Despite all the horror of the sin that we committed in Adam, despite all the accumulated sins of individuals and nations since Adam, despite all the blasphemies and insults that have been heaped up by men and women against God in all the centuries, God still allows human beings to experience something of comfort and contentment while they're here in this world. He allows them to glimpse beauty. He allows them to develop friendships and, and bonds of kindness. He grants them physical and intellectual pleasures. He prevents his own image from being completely obliterated in them. Every day that a sinner is kept out of hell is a gift from God. And it's a gift of grace. It is sheer undeserved kindness. If God had treated us as we have treated God, every one of us would have heard already the dreadful words, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ever since Adam, human beings have been hating God, despising God, blaspheming God, pretending God isn't there. That's how we've treated him. And meanwhile, God has been holding back 
the destruction that we've called down on ourselves. And more than that, God has been giving us endless good gifts. Have you ever had a moment of joy as you've looked out over a sunlit landscape? Well, that was God's gift to you, and you didn't deserve it. Have you ever been hugged by a friend? Well, that was God's gift, and he didn't have to give you that. It was sheer kindness. Have you ever enjoyed a night's sleep in your life? Well, God chose to give you that night's sleep when he could have cast you into hell where there is no rest. You know, people are constantly demanding that we explain why human beings suffer. They talk about the problem of pain. Well, if you have ever seen yourself as you really are, if you have really been shown your sins and just how horrible and disgusting they are, you won't find any difficulty in the fact that human beings suffer. Your problem will be to understand why human beings do not suffer more. Why God has kept you or any human being out of hell. You'll find yourself saying, that's what I deserve. And it won't just be a phrase you'll use, you'll know it's true. And your problem then won't be the problem of pain, it'll be the problem of pleasure. You'll find yourself shaking your head in amazement, asking, why does God give human beings so much pleasure? Why does he allow us to listen to great music? Why does he allow us such a, an astonishing variety of foods? Why does he give us so many happy, comfortable days after the way we've treated him? And the answer will simply be, because he chooses to. Because he's kind. Listen to the Lord Jesus. This is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus tells his disciples that they've got to do something totally unreasonable. They've got to show love to people who hate them and hurt them and do everything in their power to harm them. Well, that's totally unreasonable, isn't it? If I've got a vicious enemy who spends all his time planning to hurt me, scheming to destroy me, why on earth should I spend my time and my resources doing good to him, lavishing kindness on him, loving him? Well, Jesus tells us why. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says that's the way God acts. People hate him, people blaspheme him, people insult him. And what does he do? He warms them through with his son. And he makes his rain fall on their fields to give them crops. And Jesus says to his disciples, that's why you must love your enemies so that you may be true sons of your Father in heaven, 
so that you may show that you share his nature, that you really are like him. You see, his whole argument rests on the fact that God acts lovingly towards people whom you would expect God to treat as enemies. God shows indiscriminate love, common grace, towards the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. And so Jesus tells us we have to love our enemies in order to be like God. Listen to Paul in Acts 14. He's in Lystra, speaking to a crowd of pagans, idol worshippers. How these people have insulted God. They've set up idols, lifeless bits of wood and stone, and put them in the place of God. They've suppressed the knowledge of God. And Paul says to them this, it's in Acts 14, 15, We bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yes, century after century, the nations had gone on walking in their own ways, ignoring God, robbing God of his glory. And yet, says Paul, he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's Paul's view of history. The human race, for its part, carrying on in its wicked, relentless rebellion against God. And meanwhile, God, for his part, sending harvests year after year allowing sinners to taste real satisfaction and happiness season after season. That's grace. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, um, the father runs to welcome the son when he comes home. Well, that's an amazing glimpse, isn't it, of God's attitude towards his elect. But a moment's thought will tell you that the God of the Bible carries on sending help, food, comfort, tokens of love to his rebellious children all the time they're still in the far country, while they're still refusing to come home, while they're hating him and cursing him and wishing he were dead. In some ways, isn't that even more amazing? Common grace. So when we're talking about common grace... We're talking about God's kindness, and it's revealed in countless ways. We're talking about day and night, days to work in and nights to sleep. We're talking about summer and winter, and seed time and harvest. We're talking about food and the amazing variety of different tastes and textures that God gives us, uh, curries and oat cuisine and beans on toast. We're talking about sunny afternoons and crisp winter mornings and we're talking about Beethoven symphonies and we're talking about children singing nursery rhymes. We're talking about scientific discoveries and we're talking about story time in the library. We're talking about husband and wife in bed together. 
We're talking about kids playing football in the park. These are all good gifts, aren't they? They can all be misused. They can all be turned into idols. Human beings can take any one of God's good gifts and love the gift rather than the giver. But they are still good gifts. And they're given out of real kindness. God wants human beings to enjoy these things. He wants, what was the phrase Paul used in Lystra? He wants to satisfy their hearts with food and gladness. And if we were to try to list out all the ways in which common grace manifests itself, well, it would take an eternity. But I want to focus now on one particular aspect of common grace that's often overlooked or forgotten. I want us to think about how God in common grace restrains human sin. The Bible tells us that human beings are by nature utterly and horribly wicked. Let me remind you of some familiar passages. Jeremiah 17:9 The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah was struggling to account for what he saw in the society in which he lived. Idolatry and immorality and greed and selfishness. Where do these things come from? And Jeremiah answers, they come from the human heart. They come from human nature. He says, the heart is incurably deceitful. Lies spring up naturally from the human heart. The human heart is a cobweb of lies. Human beings don't only lie to each other, they lie to themselves. They're incapable of recognizing the truth, understanding the truth, telling the truth. The human heart is full of illusions and deceits. It's beyond cure, says Jeremiah. It's a medical term he uses. It's sick. It's incurably sick, he says. There's a rottenness in human nature. Turn to the New Testament. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit. Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. Again, what a picture Jesus gives us of the human heart. He says it's a cesspit. It's a fountain of evil. Everything that's disgusting just springs up naturally from the human heart. I think one of the most sobering verses in the New Testament is to be found in the, on the lips of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew seven eleven. Jesus is talking about the goodness of God. And he says this, 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, just if you then, being evil, quite simply, without argument, he says, you're evil, of course. He takes that truth for granted. You could turn to Paul's great indictment in Romans chapter 3. Paul surveys the whole human race. And this is his one-line summary, Romans 3.9. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. They're all controlled by sin. They're dominated by sin. And then he goes on to give a string of eight quotations from the Old Testament to drive home that all. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul paints that picture of universal human depravity. Human understanding is depraved. There's no one who understands, he says. Human speech is depraved. Deceit, poison, cursing, bitterness. Human life is depraved. Bloodshed, ruin, misery. There's no one who does good, not even one. And at the most fundamental level of human motivation, human beings are depraved. He says, there's no fear of God. They don't seek God. Human beings don't naturally seek God. Their only desire is to avoid him, to hide from him, to shut him out from their thoughts. The whole fundamental orientation of the human being isn't God-centred, it's self-centred. And again and again, Paul says in these verses, it's true of all, it's true of all. There are no exceptions. Go on a little further in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 8, 7. In this verse, uh, in fact it's all through Romans 7, Paul talks about the flesh. By which he doesn't just mean the human body, he means human nature. When he talks about the flesh, he means whatever is natural to us. And he says this quite simply, the mind of the flesh, talking literally and quoting literally, the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. The mindset which is natural to us is one of enmity against God. Human beings naturally hate God. However deep it may be buried, however carefully it may be disguised, in their heart of hearts, human beings hate God. And then he goes on to say this. He says, the mind of the flesh is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. 
Human nature is so locked into this God-hating mindset that it is impossible for a natural human being to submit to the law of God. In his heart of hearts, every natural human being resents God's commandments and cannot submit to them. Let me give you one last passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul addresses Christian believers and he reminds them of what they were before they came to Christ. He says this, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you, which you, in which you lived when you followed the ways of this world. The most fundamental thing to say about them is that they were dead in relation to God. There wasn't one spark of spiritual life in them. No real desire for God. No love for God. No true reverence for God. No capacity to see God or to hear God's voice or to communicate with God. Cut off from the life of God. They were dead. And meanwhile, says Paul, they followed all the corrupt ways of the world. And worse, they followed, he says, the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. The whole pattern of their lives was devilish, satanic. They were controlled by an unseen spiritual power. A monstrous tyrant who had enslaved them and manipulated them and was working within them. Paul isn't speaking now to a group of people who had been involved in devil worship or were demon-possessed in some special way. He's saying you all were controlled by demonic forces. You were all demonized. And not only you Gentiles, he says, it was true of us too, we Jewish people. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature. Again, it's literally our flesh following its desires and thoughts. So when we followed the ways of the world and the agenda of demons, we weren't acting unwillingly. We were simply living out our real nature, the desires of our own flesh. This is what we wanted to be. This is what we wanted to do. To live this worldly, demonic, evil way was what was natural to us, says Paul. And this is Paul's punchline. By nature, by our very nature, we were objects of wrath, just as the others our very nature was something that cried out for God's anger and judgment. Well, there you have just a handful of the Bible passages which speak about human nature. And those verses are only the tip of the iceberg. We find the same teaching in hundreds of other places in the Bible. The Bible tells us that human beings are bad. Appallingly bad. Incurably bad. And the Bible emphasizes that this is true from birth, even from conception. Psalm 51 verse 5, David says, Behold, in iniquity I was brought forth. In sin my mother conceived me. 
David says, when I was born, when I was brought forth, already I was in a state of iniquity. And that word means twistedness, perversion. Indeed, even before birth, from the time my mother conceived me, I was in sin, says David. This zygote, this, this tiny embryo growing in the womb already shared the twistedness, the corruption of human nature. Before there were hands or feet or, or a brain or a nervous system, that cluster of cells in the mother's womb was already part of humanity. It shared human nature. And the human nature it shared was a fallen and evil nature. You remember that that verse is part of David's cry of repentance. David, in adult life, had committed appalling crimes. He'd used his position as king to exploit and seduce a vulnerable woman. And then he'd arranged the murder of her husband to cover up his guilt. And now David's been convicted by God's spirit and God's word. And what does he say? Does he say, well, yes, I've committed these awful deeds, but they're out of character. Now, what David says is this. What I did springs from what I am. It's not that I've fallen from innocence and become wicked. No, the reason I've done these things is because I am wicked. And I've been wicked from the moment of my birth. I've been wicked from the moment my mother conceived me. From conception, I've had the, sin, the seeds of these sins in my heart. David was capable of adultery. David was capable of murder. He was capable of a cover-up that involved the deaths of his most loyal troops. Why was he capable of those things? Because of the evil that was woven into his nature from the moment of his conception. There is no sin so horrible that you or I could not commit it. Every human being is born with the heart of a God-hater. The heart of a blasphemer, the heart of a murderer, the heart of a pervert, the heart that's at enmity with God. The children I've brought into this world, and I love them, have hearts which are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the consequence of Adam's sin talked earlier about the fact that Adam's sin has brought us all into a state of guilt. It's also true that Adam's sin has left us all depraved and twisted by nature. People agonise, don't they? Trying to explain how it is that human beings do such terrible things. We're bewildered by accounts of genocide. How do we account for the Holocaust? How do we explain what's happening in Zimbabwe today? The systematic torturing of a whole nation by, by ruthless, relentless men. Or at the other end of the scale we ask, how can a mother abuse or torture her own children? We asked, how can people be drawn into every sort of perverted and unnatural practice? 
But for Bible-believing Christians, these things aren't puzzling. This is simply human beings acting in line with human nature. This is what we are. For us, the problem is elsewhere. Our puzzle isn't why do human beings do such wicked things. Our question is, how is it that human beings do not do these things all the time? How is it that human beings ever do good things? Things which go against their real nature. Every human being does do good things. Human beings are capable of murder, but they're also capable of acts of kindness and generosity. People who aren't Christians do acts of amazing self-sacrifice. Mothers starve themselves to keep their children alive. Men risk their lives to save strangers. Kindness, loyalty, truth, courtesy. You find all these qualities in people who have no Christian testimony at all. In every human character there are qualities that are praiseworthy and good. And the Bible acknowledges those qualities. Elijah's an exile in a far country and he'd have starved but for the kindness of an amazingly generous woman. Paul comes to a town called Berea. He pays tribute to the fact that the people of Berea were more honourable. They were open-minded. They tried to be intellectually honest. Paul was shipwrecked on Malta and was treated with real kindness by the islanders. The Bible acknowledges that you can find genuinely good and praiseworthy qualities in human beings. They aren't as evil as they could be. And that's the real puzzle. If human beings have totally depraved hearts, which is what the Bible teaches, if human nature is as corrupt as the Bible says, then how can that be? And the answer to that lies in the doctrine of common grace. One of the most vital aspects of common grace is that God restrains human beings. He holds them back from becoming absolutely wicked in their personalities and in their outward behaviour. He prevents their corrupt nature from ever working itself out completely. Think of it this way. Um, a doctor diagnoses a patient as having some horrible, incurable disease. And if it's left to itself, the disease will spread through the whole system and it'll poison every part of this man's body. The whole body will just rot and fall apart. Well, this disease is incurable. The patient's going to die of it. But what the doctor can do is he can administer drugs which combat the disease and hold back its full effects. So for a time, the patient still has some speech and some mobility, some quality of life. That isn't natural, is it? It doesn't spring from within the patient's own system. It's the result of the drugs which the doctor is giving the patient from outside. Well, that is exactly how God works. In his mercy, in common grace, he restrains, he alleviates the symptoms of man's essential disease. Now, he does that in a number of different ways. He does it by exercising direct influence by his spirit. 
on the hearts of unregenerate human beings. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his whole kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Cyrus is a godless man. He's a tyrant. He's a pagan. But we're told that God stirs his heart to do something that is good and God-honoring. Ezra 1.1, 1, 1, the impulse didn't come from within Cyrus. It didn't flow from his own nature. It was the direct influence of the Spirit of God, holding back the man's sin and provoking him into right conduct. Nehemiah, before he approaches Artaxerxes, prays like this, Lord, grant your servant mercy in the sight of this man. Again, Artaxerxes, a brutal, vicious dictator. But God moves upon the heart of Artaxerxes in answer to Nehemiah's prayer. And Artaxerxes does find it, does find he has to be merciful. There are times when evil men surprise us by doing things that are very good. And we can only explain it by saying that God has acted to restrain their sinfulness and to provoke them to good. God restrains human sinfulness too in um, less direct ways. He uses all sorts of structures which he's instituted. Educational and cultural structures. Supremely family life. He preserves family life even in godless societies. Um, and within those families, people have to learn to cooperate and they have to learn to suppress their natural selfishness. Within those families, people are trained into habits and given inhibitions which keep the darkest, deepest realities of their nature from emerging. Well, those things are all the gifts of common grace. And beyond those things, God raises up human governments as a way of restraining human wickedness. And this is the point perhaps I want to stress most of all tonight in the remainder of our time. Let me remind you of what happened at the dawn of history. Genesis chapter 4, the first murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. And then Cain is terrified because he sees the future. And it's a future in which anybody is going to feel free to kill him. He says, I shall be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now there's no human institution to defend Cain. His only protection is that the Lord promises to avenge him. He put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. You can see exactly what, Cain, what Cain's afraid of. He's afraid of a world of bloodshed and violence and revenge and escalating feuds. And that's exactly what develops. Cain builds a city, he fathers a tribe. And God gives many wonderful common grace gifts to that community. 
It was in that community that God raised up the first musicians and technologists and agriculturalists. These great human capacities were all developed among the children of Cain. But it was also a community dominated by violence and brutality. It was a community where might is right, where the most powerful lived by terrorizing others. A couple of generations down from Cain, the leader of the clan is a man called Lamech. He took two wives. Who could prevent him? He's the strongest man there in that town. If he wants to take two wives, he will do. And Lamech boasted to his wives. It's Genesis 4.23. I've killed a man for wounding me. I've killed a mere lad who dared to strike me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Might is right. There's no restraint. There's no government to punish crimes or to fix a tariff for different offences. A man like Lamech writes his own laws. If somebody lays a finger on him, he'll kill them. All the brutality that's there in human nature just spills over in a community like that. Because there's nothing to stop it from spilling over. And where does it lead? You come to Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. And that's a terrifying description, isn't it? Of what life on earth became in those days. Notice the repeated alls and everies and onlys in the verse. Every inclination of the thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. And then you've got another all a little further down. It's in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all flesh on earth had corrupted their ways. Do You see, the whole of life had become totally corrupted. When human beings are left to themselves... When they're just left to behave naturally. When there are no restraints to prevent them. What do you see? Every thought of every human being. Only evil. All the time. And those evil thoughts. The inclinations of the heart. Work themselves out so that society becomes. Utterly corrupt and full of violence. And it was that which made the flood inevitable. You see, God had simply left men and women at that point in history to go their own way, to act according to their nature. Men and women demand the right to be free. Well, God had allowed them to be free. He hadn't intervened. He hadn't prevented one man from doing what he wanted to another man. And the result was that this world came came to be within a finger's breadth of being hell on earth. So God sent the flood to wash the earth clean. 
that society was beyond hope, it was beyond rescue. For then, beyond the flood, we read this. Noah's come out of the ark. He offered burnt offerings. And then we read this, it's Genesis 8.21. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart are evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. You see, here is God resolving to apply common grace in a new way. He acknowledges that man's heart continues to be evil from his youth. Even though the human race has been reduced to Noah and his family, God knows that they'll carry forward the same depraved nature. He knows that left to itself, the human race will descend to the same depths as before the flood. But he's determined that that must never happen again. He's determined that it must never again be necessary to send the same obliterating judgment. He's determined that human beings will continue to enjoy the blessings of seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night. He's determined to maintain stability in the physical world. He's determined that he's going to ensure that it's a world where people will be able to sow and reap and eat and drink and work and rest. And that's what he goes on to promise in the covenant of chapter 9. So the question is, how is he going to do that? How is he going to ensure that the human race does not descend into the same cycle of total violence? How is he going to make sure that he won't need to send another flood? How is he going to restrain human wickedness? And the answer is given in the command he gives to Noah in chapter 9, verse 5. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God creates a new institution, the institution of government. From now on, the man who sheds blood must be called to account by his fellow man. He's not to be allowed to live as Cain was allowed to live with impunity. He's not to get away with it just because he's stronger. Systems, mechanisms have to be put into place to ensure that the man of violence is dealt with in justice. That's how human wickedness was to be restrained after the flood. God commanded that a system of justice should be put into place. A system which would ensure that the innocent would be protected and that the guilty would be punished. Just in those few sentences, you've got the first seed from which will grow all the institutions of government. The state, the law court, the, uh, the police, the army, the executioner. If this is to be carried through, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man must his blood be shed. 
then it's going to require that all those mechanisms be put into place. Do you see how in these chapters, two dimensions of common grace interrelate? On the one side, yes, here's God providing for man's material needs. He's promising food and drink and sleep and a physical environment that's stable. But on the other side, he's creating a mechanism to ensure moral stability, to hold back the wickedness that could lead to catastrophic judgment. The two go together. They can't be divided. The rainbow in the sky, all right, it's a, it's, um, a promise that God will uphold the physical order. But it's also a reminder to man that he's responsible to uphold the moral order. That he's responsible to preserve justice and order in society. That's Paul's perspective on human government, isn't it? Romans chapter 13. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The ruler is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Do you see the very existence of authorities, governments, rulers, is a great common grace gift of God to sinful mankind. And wherever governments act wisely, and wherever they fulfill their task of holding back sin, then they do it by God-given wisdom, even if they don't realise Proverbs 8.15, divine wisdom speaks, the wisdom that became incarnate in Christ. And wisdom says, by me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. Wherever you see rulers acting justly, then you know that it's the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of Jesus Christ, that is acting in common grace in them and through them. They may not be believers, they may not be aware of God, but those gifts of government that they exercise, that capacity to, um, to uh, legislate for justice, is a capacity given to them by the spirit of God in common grace. This really is grace, isn't it? God could have left us to ourselves. He could have abandoned us just to be what we are by nature. And I tell you, every country on earth would have become a Kosovo, a Somalia. I remember talking with a man in Barat, Albania. He was telling me about those dreadful months in 19... 98-99, when Albania descended into anarchy, the government had collapsed. Um, the army had simply disbanded itself because there was no one to pay the soldiers' wages. The prison doors had been thrown open because there was no one now to guard the prisons. The arsenals and weapon dumps that the army had abandoned had been ransacked. Children of eight and nine wandered the streets with their Kalashnikovs and their hand grenades, and snipers in upstairs windows took pot shots at everyone who walked down the street. Mobs smashed every building and every power station, every bridge. 
My friend said, it was war everywhere. I said, but who was fighting who? And he said, everyone. Every man was an enemy. There were no sides in this war. Simply every man there was making it his business to kill everybody else. That's what the whole world would be apart from common grace. Well, as I said right at the beginning, I'm very glad to be speaking here tonight at the invitation of the Christian Institute. Why? Because I believe the common grace is important. The work of the Christian Institute is in many ways common grace work. The workers who do the work are men and women who have been touched by special grace, saving grace. But their work is largely common grace work. They believe that it's important that sin should be restrained in society and that government should uphold justice and that righteousness should be promoted. They want to see common grace holding back the forces of evil which ruin human lives and fill this world with horror. They want to be channels of that common grace. There are some Christians who can't understand that. They say, but our only concern should be saving grace. They they say, what's the point of working for a just society, a moral society, if the people who make up that society are still lost people? They say, in the end, you know, you can't change society just by changing laws, by lobbying parliaments. They say, we must devote all our energy, all our resources to bring saving grace into the lives of men and women. That's the only answer to man's need in the end. Well, they're right about the great priority. Yes, the first charge to the church is always to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel to every creature. That's my work. That's my calling. I'm an evangelist. I'm a church planter. I spent the last 25 years of my life in the work of evangelizing the unevangelized. So yes, I'm with these friends all the way. God forbid that anything I've said tonight should detract from that great priority, the priority of taking the gospel to the lost. But I have to say this, if that is our great priority, it is not our only priority. Because it is not God's only priority. Yes, God does have a passionate longing to bring saving grace to his elect. But what we've seen tonight is that God also has a true and sincere concern for the well-being of every human being here in this world. He's busy all the time making sure that harvests happen. Making his sun shine on the unjust as well as the just. He's busy all the time feeding people and healing people. When my little boy cuts his finger and then over the next couple of days the wound heals over and new skin forms, that's our ever busy God healing him, showing his indiscriminate kindness. He's the God of common grace as well as the God of saving grace. 
And especially, as we've seen, God does have a concern that evil should be restrained and that righteousness should be promoted. That's on God's heart. And therefore, it should be on the hearts of his people. Whatever is on God's heart should be on my heart. What does Jesus say? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. True sons, reflecting his character and his concerns and his compassion. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Share his whole agenda. Should churches, local churches, as churches, be involved in common grace work, in social activism, humanitarian projects, political lobbying? Well, that's a matter of debate. It seems to me that God has given the church a single mandate to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that he's commanded. That's the great work that God has committed to churches as churches. Special grace work. But the Christian Institute isn't a church. It's simply a company of men and women, no doubt members of churches, encouraged by churches, prayed for by churches. But in the end, it's just a company of men and women who want to reflect the character of God who want to show the reality of God's character here in this world, who want to be channels of common grace. And I'm thankful for them. And I'm thankful to God who's raised them up for such a time as this. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen, for that talk. I said at the beginning that uh, Mr. Reese is prepared to answer some questions. I'm going to just give you a couple of minutes to be quiet and to think about what you might want to ask, and then we can take some questions as well. So can we just, for a few moments, let questions shape in our minds if we want to ask them? But let there be questions, please, not speeches. Would anyone like to indicate that they'd like to ask a question first? A gentleman in the middle here. And I wonder whether you had any comments on that, how the Lord uses common grace to point people to saving grace. Everybody hear the question? Yeah. I'm not sure that do you have any comments is a question. <laughs> um, would you like to make your question a little more specific? Okay, how does God use... <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose one thing we would look at would be the Gospels and the ministry of the Lord Jesus... Um, the healing miracles of the Lord Jesus are declared to be signs. Um, the, perhaps the vast majority of people who came to the Lord Jesus and uh, were physically healed um, seem not to have been brought to saving faith. 
but the healing of their bodies was a visible sign of what God in saving grace can do for human souls and that if he can open the eyes of the physically blind he can open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind if he can make the paralytic walk then he can take a man who's spiritually helpless and uh, and give him the power to walk and uh, what you see in the gospels is that every person we read who came to the lord jesus um, seeking physical healing received it and that's the great assurance that uh, that everyone who truly um, seeks to have the sickness of their soul healed by the lord jesus will receive it am i scratching where you're itching the Christian Institute expect the kingdom, saved kingdom of heaven, to enlarge through their work, for example? Okay. It seems to me that much of God's common grace work um, in the Bible does lead to kingdom um, expansion. So Paul in uh, 1 Timothy urges us to pray for human governments and the things we are to pray for um, are common grace blessings. He, we are to pray for human governments so that, they might, so that they might rule well and justly and bring about peace and stability and so on. But then he says, and one reason for doing this is for the benefit of the church. Um, that uh, so that the church can grow and so that the work of evangelism can go forward without hindrance and so that people can be saved through this. Um, surely where common, grace, um, where common grace is advanced, we trust that it will lead to, um, to special grace flowing more freely. One of the great problems we have in evangelizing children where we are is that most of them are illiterate. In a previous generation, it was possible to put, to put uh, the Bible into their hands and encourage them to read it. Now they can't read it. Um, now, it would be a work of common grace, wouldn't it, to, um, to urge um, the authorities to uh, take literacy more seriously. But it would have its spin-off in terms of our gospel outreach. But I suppose my point is this, that when we look at God and his common grace. We are not, it is not the gospel spin-off that justifies our common grace activities. In the end, the reason why God sends his reign on the unjust and the just alike is simply, Jesus says, because he cares about them both. In the end, it is simply being like God, being indiscriminately caring that justifies our common grace activities, not any gospel spin-off that uh, may follow. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, it's just... Um, uh, if, if the church uh, is people, Christian people, it's uh, a congregation of faithful men in which uh, the pure word of God is preached, the sacraments are uh, duly administered, uh, and not the clergy... How, how can it not be involved in common grace work? I suppose the distinction I'm making quite simply is that there are some things that we do 
as members of churches, and there are some things we do as citizens, as members of society. Um, we live in those two spheres, um, just as there are some things, to have a third sphere that I do as the head of my home. Um, the work that I do within my own family, I don't do as a, as a leader of the church. I do it as the head of my home. We make those distinctions all the time, don't we? I, I suppose it just is that there is much greater strength in social terms which God has created uh, a social order when you get a, a large group of people working together than just uh, uh, individual Christians, say, in a congregation. But if they do it as a body, uh, just as a matter of empirical fact, and there doesn't seem to be any prohibition uh, in Scripture, um, I mean, Paul certainly asks the church to pray for kings, and, you know, presumably what you're asked to pray for, you ought to work for. Yes, I accept that it's a fuzzy line to draw. Um, and I accept what you say, too, that people, the Christians working together, will achieve more than just individual Christians working alone. But that is why I love the work of the Christian Institute, that, that here are Christians working together, um, but not um, doing so as a church, um, but simply... Um, acting as citizens, acting like any other um, special interest group in society who join together to combine effectively to promote what they believe to be, to be right. Um, my, my hesitation is simply, I suppose, um, the fact that I don't see the mandate being given to churches in the New Testament. As you say, there is no prohibition, um, but... Uh, I suppose coming from where I'm coming from, I look for more than simply no prohibition. I look for positive mandate if I'm going to lay down responsibilities for a local church. Given what you've said about the evil nature of fallen humanity, would you like to comment on the limits that might be achieved through, say, the Christian Institute's work of common grace in a country such as ours? That sounds to me like a yes or no question, Alan. Would I like to comment? <laughs> um, clearly, there are great limits. Jeremiah, in his day, witnessed this. Um, you remember that in his time, Josiah came to the throne in, in Judah, and Jeremiah put into place national reformation. Um, Jeremiah um, made sure that every person in the land knew exactly what the commands, the standards of God were. He bound the whole nation by covenant to keep those commands. And to a great extent in Josiah's day, sin was driven underground. But that was all that happened. Sin was driven underground. And uh, that was why Jeremiah cried out in horror the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Josiah has tried to bring a cure. Josiah seemed to think that, that applying, that making people aware of righteous standards and making them promise things, bringing about outward reformation would change the nation. Jeremiah says it's not true. We can see that the human heart hasn't changed, that people are still, people have, uh, have sin written on their hearts with, uh, as, as, as if they had been engraved with pens of diamond in blocks of stone, yes? And that is why Jeremiah then looks forward and says, ah, but one day there'll be a new Israel. 
and uh, the law of God will be written on the hearts of people. Um, he's talking about gospel days. He's talking about the work that he's done um, through the Spirit of God um, by the gospel. Um, so there, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture, you see an attempt to um, transform a society by common grace. And the fact of, that something can be achieved. Sin really was driven underground for a time. Um, and yet, much that Josiah longed for was clearly not achieved. It didn't change the hearts of people. Um, how, far, how far can common grace work be effective? Well, um, all I shall say is we won't know until... Uh, we have used, until we have uh, used all the resources that God has given us with uh, our fervent prayers to uh, attempt the common grace work that is open to us. And maybe God will bless it beyond all our expectations. Maybe it will, as our brother says, lead to spiritual awakening um, a step further down the line. But uh, in the end, again, coming back to what I was saying, the justification for common grace work is not yes we think it'll be effective it's we want to be like God and God acts in common grace um, I was just wondering if you think that um, common grace is a gift given by God um, in various degrees to his people not necessarily his elect but his people here on earth and the distinction you're drawing between his elect and his people is... was the distinction that you made before, that his elect would be the people who have come to know him as one personal saviour, and the people around in the, in the general world. Okay, so you're using his people to mean people in general. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yes, I'm sure the common grace is given in different... in various degrees. Um, you look at some saintly, um, by the world's assessment, humanitarian worker who devotes herself selflessly to the needs of the poor, and I say, yes, I see common grace working in that woman. But then uh, I look at Adolf Hitler, and I see a man who, by all accounts, at least loves animals. And I say, that is common grace working in him. He is not a completely, um, he is not a man incapable of any tender feelings. There is still common grace, but I am not going to say that common grace is operating in him to the same degree as it is in the self-sacrificing nurse in that famine area. Um, thank you very much for the truth that you've brought to us tonight. But during your word, you mentioned the word elect twice. Now, it seemed to me that common grace is sort of including everyone, whereas saving grace is limited. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I believe it is. I believe that uh, that God has chosen those who will be saved. He, has, he chose them before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. And he gives to them special grace. He loves them in a way that he loves nobody else. 
He loves them with an irresistible love which guarantees that they will be brought to salvation. Um, He has this wonderful kindness, this huge goodwill, um, this compassion towards all that he has made. But yes, he has this special, particular, um, electing love for those uh, whom he chooses for, for Christ and for salvation. Thank you. Um, I live here in Gateshead. Um, The first chapter of Genesis ends with God saw uh, that it was very good, his creation. Now, there's two things which come out of that. One is, is not the very fact that God saw that it was very good, the uh, result of uh, the the, um, source of common grace, and two, um, this is a very difficult question. Non-believers will say it's God's fault that man became so sinful by allowing Adam so soon after his very good creation to fall into such sin. That's the question. Do you understand it? Can can I explain it a bit further? Um, You intimated at the beginning that one of the problems is is the problem of pain to the world. And you explained that very well um, in in explaining uh, how man fell into sin, how man is sinful from the beginning. Um, But does it not go back a little bit further Um, how could God allow such sin to come in to his very good world so quickly and and so universally? And the answer is I don't know. But what the Bible says consistently and simply is it was Adam's fault, not God's. That it was our fault, not God's. Um, And... uh, if, uh, if, if the unbeliever wants to debate and challenge God's verdict, then that in itself is an act of rebellion against God. Um, that when God, who is the only and supreme arbiter of justice, says, Adam is justly condemned. He did this. It was an act of evil rebellion. If a man dares to turn around to God and say, well, I think it was actually God's fault, then that in itself condemns that man. You know, we mustn't give, give unbelievers the luxury of thinking that they are entitled to debate justice with God. <laughs> that uh, they are entitled to, to say, I have a higher understanding of what justice is than God has. We don't really know. We, 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 we cannot fathom the depths of God's mind. Indeed. Yeah. And, but we do believe that Adam was fully, totally, personally, solely responsible. And we in Adam. Just wondering if the presence of these good gifts is the evidence of God's common grace. Is the absence of good gifts the evidence of common wrath and judgment. So if there is a plentitude of rain in one country 
and the fields are fertile? Does that mean that a period of drought in another country is the evidence of God's wrath against those people? And if there are believers in that country, is that an evidence of God's wrath against those believers also? The short answer is that wherever God withholds common grace gifts, wherever he allows the consequences of sin to work themselves out, yes, that is the evidence of his, of his wrath. And yet, and yet the wrath that comes to a believer has all been dealt with in the sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to what extent is it possible that a believer, not having the benefits of healing, for example, not having the benefits of someone to cuddle them, not having the benefits that we've taken for granted as the evidences that you've given us tonight, has that as a mark of God's judgment against him? And isn't that a very harsh thing to say to a believer who may not have some of those natural, earthly benefits? Yeah, which is why I've not said it. You know, um, I didn't say that, and I haven't said that. Um, what the New Testament would tell us is that for a believer, the afflictions that come upon him are turned round by God to become agents of God's love and kindness towards him, that they, um, that they actually promote his happiness here in this world and eternally, that we are that in all of the um, afflictions that God brings upon his elect, that they not only survive them, but that they are more than conquerors. In other words, they are actually benefited by them. Um, that whereas the uh, afflictions that fall upon the ungodly are um, indeed sent by wrath and, uh, and do nothing ultimately but harm to the non-elect, their foretastes, of hell, um, that for the believer they become foretastes of heaven. They become um, they become experiences in which he tastes more of holiness, more of God's presence. He is prepared for glory to come, and he learns to embrace them as such, as tokens of love. They are the they are the um, the, the chastisements which writer to the Hebrews describes, which are chastisements of love and not of wrath. And following on from the last question, uh, Jesus was asked about the Tower of Siloam, wasn't he? Mm. And what, was it the fault of the people on whom the tower fell or the man born blind? Was it his fault or his fair parents? There is, a, is there not a sense of uh, all of us have to put up with a fallen world and the tsunami that wasn't particularly... In one, that, that there are all sorts of natural disasters which are in this fallen world. Exactly so. Um, in a sense, every judgment that, f that falls um, in the world, every situation of pain and distress, is not a new sentence passed by God, a new judgment passed by God. It is simply the outworking of the one judgment, the one sentence, the one condemnation, the one death that came upon man the moment that Adam sinned. You know, they are all simply that working itself out. Um, nevertheless, 
there are times in Scripture when a particular judgment on a particular community is seen as the result of particular um, depravity in that community. Jonah was sent to Nineveh precisely because the sins of Nineveh were a stench in God's nostrils that uh, demanded the destruction of that city. You know, if judgment had fallen on Nineveh, it would have been a special judgment on that community. But that isn't always the case. It isn't necessarily the case. And we are never in a, in an, we are never in a position to judge infallibly that that is the case today. We are, we are, um, when we are reading scripture narratives, we have God's own inspired commentary on specific judgments that came upon specific people at specific times. Um, but when we are trying to decide why Southeast Asia, rather than, than uh, materialistic um, West Coast America, we've not, got the, we've not got the mind of God. We aren't in a position to pass those judgments. Uh, surely the two graces that we've been hearing about are definitely interlinked. One without the other is imbalance. And uh, I would suggest that um, if we seek just simply common grace, we will never get to the depths or to the full understanding of that grace. It's God's grace. We have experienced saving grace. I trust everyone here. If there's someone here tonight that knows nothing about it, tonight is a good night to find out about it. And uh, I'm sure every evangelist amongst us here would, would say, stay behind, let's talk to you. You're missing something which is tremendous. The sovereignty of God must run alongside the free will of man. They are equal in the sight of God, and balanced. And I like to think that uh, what I cannot understand of the, the grace of God or the common uh, grace of God, salvation helps me in a small way to understand it. And eternity, wonderfully, we'll live in that and understand it as we should understand it. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's not a question, is it? No, I don't Thank you for, for that. Do we have common grace because God has a redemptive plan? Is that why we haven't been judged immediately? If I'm understanding you rightly, then the answer is yes. Um, you read 2 Peter, and we're told that the reason why the final consummating wrath has not yet come is because God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, having said that, don't let that take away from the fact that God's great motivation is that he enjoys being kind. You know, it's not just, ah, well... I can't bring the judgment yet because that would frustrate other plans I've got. It's the God here and now wants to be merciful. He is slow to anger. He loves to be merciful. He loves to see people being happy 
He loves to fill the hearts of, of people with, well, their bellies with food, says Paul, and their hearts with, with joy. He really is God's character. Um, we've got a... Judgment is God's strange work. When, when uh, we're often told that by uh, encouraging people to live according to God's common grace, that we're being unlive, unloving towards them and restrictive, in actual fact, we're being compassionate to them and, and we're wanting them to enjoy all that life has to offer under God's common grace. Surely the, the law of God is a, is a um, it's an outworking of God's kindness. Um, the, uh, the psalmist rejoices, doesn't he? And uh, he says, oh, he goes through all the blessings God gave to um, Old Testament Israel, special protection and uh, wonderful prosperity and so on. And then he finishes the list, but he says, best of all, God's given us commands which is not given to any other nation, commands that uh, show us how to live lives of satisfaction and peace. And um, There is the path of obedience to God's commands, to God's holy standards, even where it's merely an external following of those commands by an unbeliever will lead to a happier and more fulfilling life than a life of, uh, than a life of disobedience. You mentioned... Nineveh, oh. and they were, in, they were in lack of common grace. They were in need of common grace. In your opinion, do you think a king that didn't know our Heavenly Father, he called a fast for human beings and also his animals, and he received the common grace. Do you think in our generation now there's a lack of prayer and fasting that we might receive more of God's common grace? I will simply say there is a lack of prayer and fasting, full stop. <laughs> um, in a sense, this is far beyond the, the uh, matter we're discussing tonight. I think and uh, perhaps you'll think it's a sweeping statement, I think there has never been a generation of Christianity where Christians have talked so much about prayer, have written so many books about prayer, have circulated so many prayer letters, um, have uh, passed on so much information for prayer, have said more often to one another, you will pray for me, won't you, brother? And where so little praying is actually done. Um, I, um, I visit and stay in the homes of different people. And when you do stay in people's homes, one thing, inevitably, you, you see something of the routines of the home. And I tell you, there are many, many Christian homes where there is, the routine of the home is such that you know that nobody in that home is praying regularly. But then I look at my own life and I say, that's where I am too so much of the time. Um, the, uh, yes, let's pray for common grace in our land. Paul talks about that, as I say, in 1 Timothy. Um, but let's just pray. <laughs> let's, let's pray for that a God of grace will show grace in every way in our day and generation. <laughs>